Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hi Strange is released weekly, every Thursday, brought to you absolutely free. But if you want to binge the whole season, it's available right now on Apple Podcasts for all Tenderfoot Plus subscribers. You'll also get exclusive bonus episodes throughout the season. For more information, check out the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Barney and Betty Hill are two of many Americans who claim to have seen an unidentified flying object and two of perhaps a hundred who claim to have been aboard a flying saucer. Want this on my lapel? Yes, please. I'll never forget that day. I was 13 years old in 1961 when Betty and Barney were abducted. My mother was on the phone with Betty. I listened. My mother was concerned, and I knew that something was wrong. When she hung up the phone, she told me Betty and Barney had seen a flying saucer up close the night before. They were afraid they'd been contaminated. Welcome to High Strange. On September 19, 1961, newlyweds Betty and Barney Hill were traveling along U.S. Route 3 in the mountains of New Hampshire. What transpired that night would forever shape the horror sci-fi genre of alien abductions in pop culture. I'm going to start out telling you about my capture, which happened on September 19, 1961. This is Betty Hill sharing her story at the International UFO Congress in 1977. On that night, my husband Barney and I were returning from Montreal. We left there in late afternoon, and Barney and I was having a very pleasant drive home to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. All of a sudden, I saw what I thought was a new star in the sky. It began to move, zigzagging, going up and down, spinning. This object left the top of the mountain, came out over the highway directly in front of the car, and stopped. Barney decided he's going to get out and identify this object. So he took the binoculars and stepped away from the car. And when he did, the object shifted out over the field. Barney walked towards it, looking up, and he could see human-like figures 
standing in the window looking down at him. And at that moment, the craft began to descend. And Barney panicked, feeling they planned to capture him. He came tearing back to the car, saying we had to get out of there. They were going to capture us. I was 13 years old in 1961 when Betty and Barney were abducted. This is Betty and Barney Hill's niece, Kathleen Martin. Betty and Barney had seen a flying saucer up close the night before. They were afraid they'd been contaminated. We had a neighbor who was a physicist, and my mother said that she would call him to ask what else they might do. They had already taken long showers. They had put their suitcases outside. They threw all the food away. So they were taking a lot of precautions, worried that they might have been contaminated by this craft. It came within 100 feet of them. I was just terrified. What were you afraid of, you think? Being taken. I was afraid of being taken. When I was 16 years old, Betty and Barney had sessions with neuropsychiatrist Dr. Benjamin Simon. They would stop at my home and my grandparents' home across the street on the way home from Dr. Simon's office in Boston, Massachusetts. They talked about the ETs, about what they did to them, a little bit about the communication. There was a lot of evidence. Torn dress, shiny spots on the trunk of the vehicle that had a magnetic field, watches that had broken and never ran again, binocular strap broken. Betty's dress was torn in several places. All of those things were a mystery, but sort of with my scientific mind, I was interested in all of that and how it might have happened. Over the course of this episode, I'm going to unpack all the details of the Betty and Barney Hill incident, including the horroring tape of their recollection of this alleged encounter. And I'll also say, I completely understand how absolutely insane this stuff sounds. Even as I sit here right now, it can so easily just sound preposterous to me. So before we dive in super deep, I want to highlight some of the things that make this case incredibly harder to just blindly dismiss. The physical evidence. After extensive investigation, it was learned that both Betty and Barney experienced several physical changes that night. Betty's blue dress she was wearing was badly damaged. It was ripped in multiple places and covered in some kind of pink powder that left stains. The tops of Barney's shoes were scraped, and the strap on his binoculars was also broken, and both of their wristwatches stopped working that night. On their car, they found weird circular marks on the trunk that were never there before, and if you approached it with a compass, it would start to spin around all crazy. So whatever happened that night, and for as weird and unbelievable as it all may sound, this was the result of that, or was part of some much more elaborate hoax. Well, it's a gentleman. The name is Dr. Benjamin Simon. He's a psychiatrist in the Boston area, and he was called on to uh, interview, psychoanalyze, and hypnotize Betty Hill and Barney Hill. 
Welcome, Dr. Silent, to our program. Dr. Silent? Yes. Now, let's start from the beginning. When did you first enter this, the story of Betty and Barty Hill? In late uh, 63. There was something in their lives, uh, two hours or so, which seemed to bother them, but for which they could not account. Well, Barney's symptoms had begun just after they had this supposed sighting. Betty had responded by a series of dreams extending over a week or more of a nightmarish quality. They had no idea what had happened, if anything, during these two hours. What should have been a relaxing drive in the middle of the night, on their way home from a delayed honeymoon, was interrupted by something extremely eerie. As Betty looked out the passenger side window, she saw a bright object in the sky moving sporadically. At first, Betty thought it was a star. Then Barney thought it was a satellite. Eventually, they became so curious, Barney pulled the car over to get a better look at it. He stepped out of the car and grabbed his binoculars from the back seat. And when he looked up, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. Barney claims to have seen a large craft hovering just a few hundred feet in the sky. It was extremely bright and made no noise. On the front of it was a long row of curved windows, and he could see inside the craft. He saw what looked like beings standing around and moving about the craft's interior, looking right at him. He was horrified. Almost instantly, he ran back to the car and sped off in a panic. Betty and Barney both initially remembered a haze coming over them and what they described as a strange series of beeping sounds. And then, abruptly, a jump in time. When they came to, they were still driving. But the first road sign they saw indicated they were over 35 miles away from just moments ago. This missing time they experienced bothered the both of them. Here's Betty Hill again, explaining the instance of lost time that both her and Barney experienced. He put the car into gear and we went speeding down the highway. Barney said when he came back, the craft had followed and was now over the car. So I looked up. I looked out the window. All I could see was something black. And at that point, there was a series of beeping sounds, and the car vibrated. And Barney and I stopped talking. We drove along. There were spots that I recognized that were familiar to me. Barney left Route 3. He turned on to Route 175 and was still speeding along when all of a sudden Barney slammed on the brakes. The car came to a screeching halt. The next thing that I could remember, we're back on Route 3. And I said to Barney, do you believe in flying saucers? And Barney said, don't be ridiculous. Barney and Betty gave the same story. And that story was precisely like the story that had been written up by the NICAP investigator. There were no significant differences, in fact, practically no differences between the three. This story they each gave consciously. They gave exactly the same story. There was no difference that they both shared the same experience all the way. They were visited by officers from the Air Force who questioned them about the missing time. They seemed to really push on that particular part of the story. How could you travel 35 miles with no memory of it? The officers also inquired about nitrates, but the only thing the Hills could think of that was strange in their car was a few shotgun shells from Barney's gun and a bag of bone meal fertilizer in the trunk. I guess if you're looking for ways to rationally explain some hallucination, 
Maybe accidentally ingesting this stuff could cause it? Either way, they were reaching for anything that made sense. They had six months of hypnosis sessions with Dr. Benjamin Simon. At times, both of them were so distressed over what was occurring that he feared that it might increase the level of trauma. So he wanted to work through them on reducing that level of trauma. In the beginning, he took them separately and he reinstated amnesia at the end of each session so they couldn't share information. During World War II, Dr. Benjamin Simon served as the Army's chief of neuropsychiatry. He used something called regression therapy, more commonly known today as hypnosis, in an attempt to extract more detail from their alleged encounter. In regression therapy sessions like this one, Dr. Simon guides the patient and points them towards the source of their traumas buried deep in their subconscious. Far asleep. You will not be anxious or distressed, but you will remember everything and you will tell me everything. Yes. Through several months of sessions, he slowly helped Betty and Barney Hill remember what happened during their lost time. Betty said, look, there's the star moving. And then I pulled over to the side of the road. Betty passed his binoculars to me. Did you see the rows of windows? I can't hear any sound. No sound, whatever. I heard no noise. I want to hear a jet. Why do you want to hear a jet? Because Betty is making me mad. Because she's saying, look at that. It's strange. It's not a plane. Look at it. And I keep thinking it's got to be. Since these events, both Betty and Barney Hill have passed away. Even though they lived in the Northeast, this was during the height of the Civil Rights Movement. And because Betty and Barney Hill were an interracial couple, they did not want to be in the spotlight for their abduction story. So they didn't even discuss it with their friends. The story only became public after a reporter for the Boston Globe got a hold of some notes that a UFO researcher took while interviewing them in confidentiality. Barney states that the object in the sky was making no noise. He also claimed to experience some sort of time loss. Today in 2023, these are all familiar themes we've heard when it comes to UFO sightings. But the interesting part of this is how long ago it happened. This was in 1961, so over 70 years ago now. And it's one of the first major claims of an alien abduction on record in American history. So you could argue that either the concept of time loss and hovering crafts that make no sound all started right here, and then evolved into pop culture in such a way that literally hundreds of other people in the years following began applying the same idea to their own claims, or that whatever they did experience that night truly involved those things. Either way, it started right here. If Betty and Barney Hill were making all this up, or simply hallucinating, then they still literally created the concept of time loss and aircrafts that don't make noise. Maybe they did truly experience this, and everyone else is making up their stories and were simply influenced by Betty and Barney Hill. Or maybe there's a legitimate common thread here. The following is the tape from Betty and Barney Hill's regression therapy sessions. And I must warn you, 
It is very intense and may be triggering for some people. Listener discretion is advised. One more warning about the intensity of the tape you're about to hear. At this point in the tape, Barney again becomes overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. This is actually why he started seeing a psychiatrist in the first place. Ever since he saw this UFO, he'd been plagued with severe anxiety, and his first psychiatrist couldn't figure it out until he met Dr. Simon. Keep remembering, you feel you have to get your gun. This is going to harm you yourself. I open the truck of my gun, and I get it. And I get back in the car, and I put it in my coat. And then I get out with the binoculars. I walk out, and I walk across the road. And there it is up there. Calm down. Calm down. It's there. Let's get to see it, but it's not going to hurt you. Go on. I can see it tilted toward me. Tilted. And what does it look like now when you say tilted? Does it, did you see it? It looks like a big pancake with windows and lights. And rows of windows like a commercial plane? They're not like a commercial plane because they curve around to the size of this pancake. The eyes are there. Always the eyes are there. And they're telling me, I, I, I don't have to be afraid. How did you see these figures so clearly at that distance? I was looking at him with binoculars. Yeah. His eyes were planted. I see it so. His eyes were planted. This creature, this leader is telling me something. How? How is he getting it to you? I can see it in his face. You see his legs move? Yes. Now, his tips aren't moving. Yes, go on. He's telling you something. And he's looking at me. How could you be sure he was telling you this? I... I never seen his eyes before. <laughs> what did he tell you? Stay there and keep looking. Just keep looking and stay there. And just keep looking. Just keep looking. Hey, could you hear each other? Oh, I gotta pull these binoculars away from my eyes. Because if I don't, I'll just keep staying there. Could you hear him tell you this? Oh, no. He didn't say it. You felt he said it. I, I know. 
you know it. Just stay there, yeah. Just stay there, he's saying to me. So what was it that Barney was actually looking at through the binoculars? According to him, it was like whatever he was seeing was communicating with him from up in the sky. Barney got back in the car and drove down the road with Betty in the passenger seat to get out of there. Stay asleep a little longer. Oh, we'll get through it all right. I don't have to be afraid, but they won't talk to me. Who won't talk to you? The men, they are standing in the road. Is there an accident down the road? They stumbled upon a strange roadblock out in the middle of nowhere. Where are you? You're in the car? I saw a group of men, and they were standing in the highway, and these men, I am only thinking of mental pictures because my eyes are cold, and I think I am going up. Dr. Benjamin Simon's process was a slow one, but throughout six months of therapy, he was able to piece together the whole story of the roadblock, with Barney only remembering pieces of it at a time. I don't want to be operated You don't want to be operated on. What makes you think of an operation? I was thinking about this when I was lying on my stomach. Look where these men in the road, or what part did they play in it? They took me and carried me up this ramp. I was laying on the table, and my fly was open, and I thought, are they putting a cup around my private parts? If I keep real quiet and real still, I won't think hard and it will be over. In all these sessions, Barney never fully remembers what happened on the table he was put on. I open my eyes and there is the car and the lights are off and it is not running and I see Betty is coming down the road she gets into the car and I am grinning at her and she is grinning back at me and we both seem so elated. How funny. I have no reason to fear. And we look, and 
I see a bright moon and I laugh and say, well, there it goes. <laughs> I never believed in clang spouses, but I don't know. I wonder where they came from. You wish you had gone with them? Yes. One of the experience the goats don't discontinue. All right, he'll stop there. You'll be calm and relaxed. You'll forget everything we have had done until I ask you to recall it again. You may wait now. Wow. Ten minutes after eight. Can you bring me in here ten minutes after eight? Yes. So how do you feel? I feel fine. Okay, all right. We'll continue this next week, the week from today. Just like Barney, Betty underwent her own hypnosis sessions. The anxiety that Betty was experiencing came in the form of vivid dreams, and these started immediately after the night of the incident. I don't know where we are. I don't even know how we got here. I just was sitting here feeling as something's going to happen. And I'm not really too afraid. Why are you crying if you're not afraid? I was afraid when I saw the men in the rows. Men in the row. Tell me about the men in the row. It's all right now. You're safe here. Tell me about the men in the rows. We went out to this narrow road. There was these men standing in the highway. He stopped the car. These men started to come up to the car. I got real scared. Barney tried to start the car. He did what? He tried to start the car yes. and it won't start. And the men are coming towards us. They open the car door. Go on. You can remember everything now. He says, don't be afraid. You don't have any reason to be afraid. We're not going to harm you. We just want to do some tests. When the tests are over with, We'll take you and Barney back and put you in your car. You'll be on your way. These men spoke good English? He had an accent. He, he's just sort of a foreign accent. So then we kept walking and we came to a clearing. The object was on the ground. The object was on the ground. Yeah. I think it was the same when I was watching in the sky. The same craft that she saw in the sky was now on the ground in a clearing. And according to Betty, she was being guided by these men towards a ramp leading up into the object. They're taking me up to the object. I don't want to go on it. I don't know what's going to happen if I go on it. I don't want to go. I go up the ramp, and I go inside. There's a room. Another man comes in. He tells me to 
take off my dress. Sort of in the middle of the room is a table. I lie down and the examiner has a long needle in his hand. This bigger than any needle I've ever seen. I asked him what he's going to do with it. And he said he just wants to put it in my table. I tell him, no, it will hurt. Don't do it. Don't do it. Anything for me to my table. <laughs> and I'm crying and I tell her it's hurting and hurting and hurting and hurting and hurting and then the leader so I just in front of my eyes and he says I'll be alright I won't feel it and all the pain goes away I asked the leader I said why did they stick the needle in my navel? And he said it was a pregnancy test. I don't know what they expected, but that was no pregnancy test. The rational question starts to become, is she just remembering a nightmare? Or is she being haunted by fragmented memories of something that actually happened? What's interesting, though, is that either version of this is totally bizarre. If she was of sound mind, like everyone who knew her said for her to be, to abruptly experience vivid lifelike dreams that perfectly match that of her husband's, too, well, science can't really explain that very well either. And on the other hand, if it were all true, and she was actually led into a spacecraft that night, that's pretty damn weird, too. And you also can't discount the physical evidence. Betty's dress that was badly ripped and stained. The tops of Barney's shoes that were scraped up. The strap on his binoculars that was broken. Both of their wristwatches stopped working. Weird circular marks on the trunk of their car that would make a compass spin if you got close to it. These things are real, and they're heavily documented. So even if you want to say they just made all this up, you'd have to also add in that they elaborately staged this thing too. Or they did experience something real and physical that wasn't an alien spacecraft. And all these physical changes were a result of it. The bottom line is, there aren't many cases in modern history that are this hard to make sense of. Something happened that night. And over 70 years later, there isn't one good single explanation for any of it. We have heard the extraordinary personal story of Barney and Betty Hill and a much broader discussion of the phenomenon of UFOs by a panel of authorities, some of whom insist there are no visitors from outer space, some of whom are skeptical, and some of whom believe that the only explanation to fit the facts is that there are extraterrestrial visitors. Unidentified flying objects demand serious and immediate scientific attention. We would recommend, one, an immediate study in depth by university teams. Two, a pattern analysis by computer of existing data. And three, the establishment of a UFO research center staffed by competent scientists. For ridicule is no longer appropriate. Here's Avi Loeb, professor of science at Harvard University. The reports from government are interesting because the most juicy data must be classified. 
He started a program called the Galileo Project to study UAPs. After first contacting NASA to see if they could work together, he never got a reply. So instead of waiting around, he embarked on his own nonprofit scientific endeavor. He's raised over $2 million to fund their team's research. The sky is not classified. The data is classified just because the sensors used to collect it are classified. It's very intriguing that people high up in the chain of command, the head of NASA, director of national intelligence, notice things that appear to be intriguing. And I think what we need to do is collect new data. That's what the Galileo Project aims to do. Their goal is to study UAPs from the ground, launching probes into space to rendezvous with interstellar objects. Using some of the most advanced scientific instruments in the world, their ultimate goal is to learn as much as possible and determine whether these objects are natural phenomena or technological in origin from another planet out in the universe. We are designing our own instruments, instruments carried by military personnel used for national security purposes. The instruments the Galileo project is developing were designed, were optimized to detect such data. We have full understanding of the detectors we use and that's the path forward rather than waiting for the government to release classified data because you can wait forever. It may not happen. And I don't want the government to compromise national security. I don't want them to do that. The government is not a scientific organization. I think it's the duty, the civil duty of scientists to help them figure out what these unidentified objects are. If some are drones from China, that's for them to study because that's a matter of national security. But I'm just looking for whatever appears to be an outlier that has nothing to do with human-made objects. The budget that the government has is larger than any scientific organization. They have access to sensors and data quality that nobody else has, just because they are defending the safety of the nation. As a result, they come across things that have nothing to do with national security that could be of scientific value. During the height of the Cold War, the US was worried that the Soviets or China would break the treaty in place, which banned detonating nuclear bombs. In order to try and track this, the US sent out a variety of sensors on multiple spacecraft, and as a result, they detected occasional bursts of gamma rays. Thinking at first they were from Russia, they dug deeper into the data and realized that these gamma rays were actually coming from distant galaxies. They brought it to the attention of people at Los Alamos that are also astronomers, and there was a scientific paper written by the group at Los Alamos basically saying, these are gamma ray bursts. We don't know what their origin is, but it's definitely not on Earth. These flashes are coming from the universe, are not coming from the Russians. Eventually, it was an Italian-Swiss satellite that detected, in addition to the gamma rays, detected also X-rays and could localize in the sky precisely where the flash is coming from. And then they found a galaxy in that location on the sky so they could tell the distance. It was realized these flashes are coming from across the entire universe. Very powerful explosions. This is an example where the government actually was first to detect an astronomical source of a new type, most likely a result of a star collapsing. The star collapses, makes a black hole at the center, and if it's pointed at us, we see it as a gamma ray flash. What lies outside of our backyard is not necessarily what we find in our backyard. 
In the past decade, we found the first objects from outside the solar system. Guess what? Three out of the four do not look like the rocks we had seen in the solar system, so we should be open-minded. We've been proven wrong. It may well be that some of these interstellar objects are artificial in origins. Avi isn't shy about expressing his distaste for a large portion of the science community and how they treat the subject of UAPs. In his eyes, he's seen time and time again respected peers shying away from the concept of ET life merely because of the tremendous implications of it all. In order to adapt to the reality that we live in, we have to understand it. And that should be common knowledge. It cannot be restricted to a small group of people. People like to hear stories of actual sightings. Here's Leslie Kane. The Nimitz case, the famous 2004 incident, is considered one of the most powerful cases on the record that we have. In November of 2004, the USS Nimitz aircraft carrier was conducting a training exercise off the coast of California. For six days in a row, they detected multiple anomalous aerial vehicles, acronym AAVs, that were operating in their near vicinity. Basically, foreign objects in the sky that shouldn't be there. I was shown these three videos, which have since become incredibly famous. There's a whole fleet of them, look on the ASA. My gosh. That was stunning to me, to see three videos that were in the possession of the US government that were taken by Navy pilots of UFOs. We were the ones that first broke that story into the public domain, what has now become known as the Tic Tac. These tic-tac-shaped vehicles basically stalked the aircraft carrier for days. Here's Brian Bender. Pilots are flying off the aircraft carrier, doing their drills, and these tic-tacs are just flying circles around them, flying at enormously high speeds, speeds that they can't even really begin to keep up with them if they wanted to. No sense from any of the radar that there's an engine. It's not giving off any heat going from the surface of the ocean to 70,000 feet in a couple seconds, which would make any aircraft we know blow up. What is that? How do they do that? How were they flying that way? In 2017, the videos were leaked in the massive articles put forth by Politico and the New York Times. A fuzzy black and white video shows a large tic-tac-shaped object. The pilot locks onto it with the camera, loses it, then locks back in before it speeds off to the left out of frame. It was like flipping a switch from UFOs being sort of a joke and maybe some people understood it, but unless you research it, you don't really get it and it's just sort of like Roswell and whatever, to a switch to saying our government knows these are real and they're studying them and they want to find out more. You good? Yeah. yeah. You mind sitting like next to me so I can get closer? I sat down with one of the radar specialists working on the USS Princeton when the Tic Tac object was captured by fighter pilots. 15 and a half years in those same waters. This was the first time I'd ever seen anything like this. This is Kevin Day, retired senior radar operator for the US Navy. 
Woke up in the morning, had coffee, went up to combat, getting ready for the air defense exercise. Our aircraft was still on the beach. The ships were out there and we were just getting ready for the operational exercise. We were out there for a training exercise. San Diego coast is here, San Clemente Islands up north, and we're off in the playground area in the water right off the coast. We don't have any weapons loaded and it's all safe. We conduct intercepts on radar. I'll take control of my good guy. I'll get a radar contact and I'll actually drive him to the intercept point and they'll intercept each other and if they have to, they'll kill the bad guy. During a standard naval training exercise, Kevin was below deck of the USS Princeton when he noticed objects appearing on his radar screen that shouldn't have been there. It was just sitting there. I just tracked it. We all kind of thought, well, maybe it's civilian and they just forgot some test or something they were doing. Had them on radar and we put them on the data links, reported them to the beach and gave our voice reports and said, hey, we're seeing these things. If you're worried about them, let us know. So if anyone was concerned about them, they had our data and we gave heads up and everything. Over the night, I was saying to myself, if these objects, whatever they are, show up again, I gotta talk to the captain. I'm worried about safety of flight. The captain came down to combat and said, hey, sir, you know what? We've been tracking these things for four days now and nobody has any idea what these are. I'm very, very concerned about safety of flight. Safety of flight was and is the primary concern. It's Kevin's job to detect any anomalies in the air that may pose a threat to the pilots. These aircraft cost tens of millions of dollars to manufacture. Not only would a mid-air collision put the military out of one of the most expensive jets on Earth, but more importantly, it would expose the pilots themselves to a very real risk of injury or death. I didn't want the aircraft to launch off and get involved with these objects, whatever the hell they were, and end up causing a mid-air incident. If we have an air incident, someone's gonna ask both you and me why the hell we didn't say something about it. Part of Kevin's responsibilities during this mission was to guide his pilot to the next rendezvous point. But this training exercise was interrupted and the pilots were ordered to get closer to the objects and try to figure out what these things were. They'd come from outer space, low earth orbit, go to 28,000 feet right off the coast of Catalina. And then they would start going between us and the coast right through our operating area, disappearing off the radars right by Guadalupe Island off Mexico. Whatever that object was dropped right down to the surface of the water. These things were breaking the sound barrier, but there was no big boom. Freaked us all out. We didn't even know how to respond to it. Came from outer space all the way down to 28,000 feet and stopped. Just stopped in the sky 28,000 feet and just started circling. It was so outside of our experience, we didn't know what to do. He went chasing it. They did a little dogfight down by the surface of the water. His wingman, he left her up high. They looked like about a 50 foot long giant tic-tac. Pure white, no doors, no windows, no nothing. Same size of his aircraft, approximately. Whatever that object was, went to Fast Eagle's assigned cap station. The exact latitude, longitude, and altitude. It stopped. How in the hell did it know where that cap point was? We hadn't been to it yet. 
It was a secret location, only in secret message traffic. They knew our intent. All the spaceship now I'm a space cadet Big white mansion in my habitat Aim right at stage like a laser tag Fuck a wish, never rich set Smoke a lot of trees, need a weed plant I did take a lean where the lean at Sleeping on these jeans, there's a beanbag Got red going jeans, cause I'm cool right Shit, no shoes overseas, they were pan leather Shop in Tokyo, Japan, they the best of Blue bear t-shirt, sleeve vanilla Hard top, turn the vert, riding any weather Got a band down this ain't a propeller. Man, we spent a dime coppin' Gucci sweaters. Said the drippin' drunk like a nine helper. Used to boom now the guys, we are not the devil. High Strange is an eight-part series released weekly for free every Thursday. But if you'd like to binge the whole series right now, you can. Subscribe to Tinderfoot Plus on Apple Podcasts to get all the episodes right now. Follow the show on TikTok and Instagram at High Strange. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Payne Lindsay. If you have your own UFO story, email us at tips at highstrange.com. High Strange is a production by Tenderfoot TV in association with Cadence 13. Created, hosted, and edited by myself, Payne Lindsay. Executive producers are myself and Donald Albright. Editing by Mike Rooney, Cooper Skinner, and myself. Original score by Makeup and Vanity Set. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Cooper Skinner. Additional production by Mike Rooney, Dylan Harrington, Eric Quintana, Sean Nerney, Meredith Stedman, and Sidney Evans. Our cover art is by Polygon. This episode features the song Space Cadet by Metro Boomin featuring Gunna. Written by Wesley Tyre Glass, Sergio Kitchens, Leland Tyler Wayne, Alan Ritter, and Jacques Webster. Performed by Metro Boomin featuring Gunna. Courtesy of Republic Records, under license from Universal Music Enterprises for Metro Boomin and 300 Entertainment for Gunna. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and the whole team at UTA, the Nord Group, Station 16, Beck Media and Marketing, as well as Chris Corcoran and the team at Cadence 13. Check out the show's website at highstrange.com. And if you're enjoying the show, please help us out by rating and reviewing the podcast and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening.